Well, hello, Trinity. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Jeff. I serve on staff here at the church. Uh, if you're finding us for the very first time, we're a pretty new church, a little over a year old. We serve North County, San Diego, along the 15, basically from Escondido down to Poway. But just grateful that you joined us uh, online today. We're in a new series, looking, in, looking through the book of James. This is our third week, and we're calling it Believing and Doing, the Seamless Unity of Faith. We're going to be in James chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, you want to open that up. James is near the end of the Bible. Um, I am going to be using the NIV translation today, but if you have the ESV or any other translation, you can obviously follow along. Um, when I was 24, myself and two friends, we went down to Costa Rica for a couple months surfing. Um, we didn't have a car down there. We took buses everywhere. We loaded bo boards on the buses. We didn't really know how to surf, which kind of plays into this story, but we figured a couple month adventure learning to surf. There's no better place in Costa Rica. We were in this little place called Santa Teresa or, or Malpais, uh, kind of in the middle of the country along the Pacific Ocean. And we're renting a place for, I think, $10 a night on the beach. And I wake up this one morning and I look out and the waves are enormous. It looks like Hawaii. They are firing down the line. And I remember thinking, I am getting barreled today. Now, if you don't surf, Barrel means the wave comes over your head like this and you're kind of in this little pocket. And I was so excited and my friend and I, we'd grab our boards and we somehow paddle out all the way out past the break. So we're sitting behind the waves, but, but neither of us are willing to go. Because every time one comes through, it feels like a mountain and you're going up and back down. And after about 20 minutes, we finally were like, all right, rock, paper, scissor, loser goes on the next one. So we did it, and of course I lost. And so I turn around, and I start paddling at the first wave of the set, which was not a smart idea. And I paddle, 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 and I go, and I'm in the wave. I'm in the perfect spot. And I go to stand up on my board, and I look down, and it looks like I'm looking down a second story, out of a second story window. And I went, whoa, and I pulled back behind the wave and turned around, and there were two more waves coming right at me. And the first one hit, boom, and knocked me all the way down under the water. And I'm scrambling, holding my breath for what seemed like eternity, an eternity. I get up, take a big breath, look, the other one hits me right on the head and throws me down into, uh, deep into the water. And by this point, I'm panicking, I'm running out of air. And the only thing I can do, thankfully my surfboard is still attached to my ankle and it's bobbing up there. I grab the leash and I start pulling myself back up towards the surface. Luckily, there wasn't another wave coming, and I come up with the biggest breath, just, <gasps> and then finally the waves kind of push me onto the sand, and I'm laying there for about 10 minutes, just breathing, thanking the Lord that I'm still alive. Needless to say, I did not go surfing the rest of that day. But breathing or breath is not what makes us alive. But when we breathe, that is an indicator that we are alive, right? If we are Breathing, it means our body's doing what it should. If we're not breathing, something's gone terribly wrong, like somebody went out in waves that were way too big for him. And the book of James is similar. The book of James deals a lot with our actions and how we live and, and, and move and act as a Christian. But our actions don't define our faith. It is our faith in the grace of God through Jesus that saves us, but our actions are indicators of that faith. Tim Keller, 
when he writes about James, he says that Paul, who wrote a bunch of letters in the Bible, uh, oftentimes would, would spend his time kind of uh, extrapolating or, or speaking in depth about these theological issues in regard to salvation and faith and whatnot. But James, he simply is assuming that we already have faith, and he's saying, here's what a Christian should look like if they have faith in Jesus. And it's an important distinction to remember as we jump into uh, our passage today. Again, James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Uh, before I read those, I want to remind us in terms of where we're at. At the end of James chapter 1, James is going to define what true religion is. Uh, Jeff Shue spoke about this last week, but James 1.27 says this, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So true religion, as James def defines it, again, this is important for us, is to not be polluted by sin from the world and to look after those who are helpless, who are poor, who are needy, who are uh, requiring or needing our care and attention. So let's jump into our passage. Um, let me read it for us, James 2, 1 through 13. This is the word of the Lord. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. If you're taking notes today, we're going to look at three really simple points. Uh, we're going to look at the goal, the mission, and the motivation. The goal, what's the goal, what's the mission, and what's the motivation? So let's start with point number one, the goal. And the goal is pretty simple. James says it in, chat, in verse one. Believers in the Lord Jesus must not show favoritism. Now, we don't know too many specifics about the church that James is writing to here, but we don't really need to, do we? I mean, when we hear something like that, that as believers, we shouldn't show favoritism from, to one person over another, we don't need to contextualize it, per se. We can look at our own lives, think of examples in our own, li in our own life, and understand exactly what James is saying. But before we really jump in, I want to pause and I want us to consider why favoritism is wrong. I mean, our culture applauds 
favoritism. It's who you know. It's how you get ahead. That's what's important. That's what's communicated to us. Now, in the first century, it seems that people were drawn to those who had wealth and power. And so much has changed today, hasn't it? Because today, we are still drawn to those people who have wealth and power. But in addition to that, an incredible social media account. Right? We're, we're just drawn to wealthy, powerful people. It happened in the first century, and it's happening today. And James is making a specific connection between our faith in Jesus and favoritism. It's as if the two stand in opposition to one another, like two magnets that are pushing against each other. Sam Alberry, who's a pastor and theologian, he writes this about favoritism. He says, favoritism is profoundly unchristian. It says, in effect, that someone who is worth more to the world is worth more to the church. And, correspondingly, that someone who is worth less to the world is worth less to the church. Favoritism ends up judging one person's soul as being of greater value than another's. And it does all this on the basis of superficial worldly criteria. You see, a central theme in all of Scripture from the beginning to the end is that all men and women were created equal. And the theological term behind that is what's known as the Imago Dei, or the image of God. Listen to Genesis 127. It says this, that God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. That means all people in the entire world have the the image of God. They're created with the image of God. They are image bearers, right? Everyone from the four tech CEOs that testified in the hearing last week to the homeless people that we drive by by the beach, all are image bearers. And this has profound implications for us as Christians. It has profound implications as we think about racism, as we think about our enemies, as we think about abortion, as we think about the political divide within our country. It has immense implications if every person is an image bearer. Anne Lamont is a a Christian writer. She writes this. It's kind of humorous. She says, "You, you can safely assume that you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. We are all created in God's image, and favoritism, James is arguing here, tears that apart. And so you have this situation where in this church, this man comes in with gold rings and fine clothes. And it says that a man in filthy clothes comes in. If you read in the ESV, it says shabby. And part of the reason I chose the NIV is that uh, that Greek word is, is more closely associated with filthy than shabby. What it really means is is nauseating, disgusting. You get the picture of uh, clothing that's been worn for weeks and weeks with dirt and oil, with urine, with grime, smelling disgusting, and this person walks into this church meeting. And these people, they see this man with the fine clothes, and they go, oh, you come sit over here. And, and to what would probably seem like a homeless man, they say, no, you can go stand over there because of the smell, or you can sit down uh, at our feet. 
Now, my first inclination when I read this, and I don't know about you, but I start thinking about my own uh, disposition, and my own attitude towards people at church. I go, man, do I, how do I show favoritism? I'm pretty, I'm friends with these people, but I know these people. And, when I, and I start to justify everything in my mind. But then I think about the filthy clothes. And James is so convicting here. because I go, man, I don't know anybody like that. I don't have anybody like that in my circles of life. And he's saying if you show favoritism, you're like these judges with evil thoughts. And that can be translated as, as judges that take bribes. So if we show favoritism, it's like a, a judge who unfairly pardons someone because of a payment they've received. Don't show favoritism, James argues. He goes on and Verse 5, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? This is a theme throughout Scripture. This idea that God uses the lesser, the weaker people for his glory. God has an intimate connection to the poor. Consider these examples. Deuteronomy 7, 7 says that God chose Israel, who were God's people in the Old Testament, because they were the least of all people, the smallest nation, the weakest nation, the most insignificant nation. Many of Jesus' disciples, who he called, were lowly, poor fishermen. And even Matthew, who's a tax collector and was wealthy, was hated by all his people. And then we come to Jesus. Listen to 2 Corinthians 8, 9. It says that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And if we look at the church worldwide, it's typically in poorer areas or among poor people where we see Christianity grow and spread like wildfires. Right now, it's Latin America and Southeast Asia, parts of Africa, and even places like Iran and Iraq and Palestine. And Paul, who I mentioned, had written several letters in the New Testament, another apostle. He agrees with James. He says this in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and 27. He says this to the church, to the church he's writing to in Corinth. He says, brothers and sisters, Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. They were kind of dumb. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Alberry he continues, he writes this. He writes, we must not overstate the point. Neither James nor Paul is saying that the church is only full of poor and weak, or that the wealthy and influential are not worth trying to reach. But both are pointing to a clear pattern. It is not random. God is choosing and calling people to himself in a particular way, and a striking feature of it is his propensity to do so from among the poor and the lowly. And the irony here is that these rich people that they're showing favoritism to are the ones that are abusing them, that are dragging them into the court, that are blaspheming the name of Jesus. And, so, and yet still these people are seeking their attention. And it's easy to step back and judge them, but I go, 
But then I think, man, it could so easily be me. So point number one, the goal. The goal is to not show favoritism as Christians. Let's move to point number two, the mission. How do we do this? James 2.8, if you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. Now this is an Old Testament command that Jesus quotes uh, several times throughout the gospels. Uh, it's part of his great commandment that he gives at the end of Matthew, that we're to love the Lord our God, the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and then we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. Now out of this command to love our neighbor comes an obvious question. Who is my neighbor? Now I asked that question as I was reading this. Is it my physical neighbor? Is it my neighbor on my street? In my neighborhood? In my city? Is it my neighbor who kind of runs in my social circles? Is it people at work? Who is my neighbor? And there was a, there was a lawyer that actually uh, was listening to Jesus teach on this command, and he raises his hand and he asks that very question. And it's in Luke 10 that the lawyer asks Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus, of course, does not give him a straight answer. Instead, he gives him, tells him a story, a parable. And he tells him a story about this man who was walking from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was attacked by robbers, and he was left half dead on the side of the road. Many of you know this story. And a priest comes by, one of his own people, and sees this man on the side of the road and goes to the opposite side and continues on his way. And a Levite, another one of his people, come along and sees him and goes on the other side of the road and continues on his way. And then a Samaritan, and the Samaritans were hated by the Jews, but the Samaritan comes and sees him and picks him up and takes him to an inn and pays to have medical help given to the man and Jesus asked, so who is your neighbor? And they obviously respond, the one, the one who helped the man. See, Jesus doesn't just answer clear, uh, who the neighbor is. He's going to show us what it means to be a neighbor. And I think there's another reason Jesus uses that parable. Because I think Jesus knows we're going to fail. I think he knows we're not always going to make the right decision. That we're going to see people and we're going to let fear take place insecurity, whatever it is, I think he knows we're going to fail. And James kind of understands this and builds on this a little bit as we continue in our passage. He says, if you, if you live like this, if you love your neighbor, you're doing well. But don't forget, don't show favoritism. Because he says in verse 9, if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point, is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you've become a lawbreaker. Now, I grew up playing a little bit of golf, um, not too much, but in high school, I loved to play at Lake San Marcos, the little executive course. And one time I remember um, spraying a shot off and putting a golf ball through the window of somebody's um, kind of front living room and this older gentleman was gracious enough to not make me pay for the window. I think I was 16 years old. But when a golf ball goes through a window, it leaves a pretty small hole. I mean, it's traveling with such velocity that it just kind of pops through that window. But the reality is, is you can't just replace a small part of the window, can you? You have to replace the entire thing. So it is with the law. 
If we want to be in right standing with God, we must keep the whole law perfectly. And if we stumble, if we break one of his laws, we're guilty of breaking all of it. Now, if you're new to Christianity or exploring faith, you might think to yourself, man, that's impossible. Nobody can do that. And that is the point of the Bible, actually. The Bible was written and the law was given to show us that it is impossible. And that's why we need someone to save us. And we're going to get to that in just a couple minutes. But point two, the mission. The mission is to love our neighbor as ourselves. Point one, the goal. The goal is to not show favoritism. Point three, let's finish with this one. What's the motivation or what's the reason? What's the drive behind the mission and the goal um, here? James 2, 12 and 13 says this, Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What is the law that gives freedom? James is going to mention it at the end of chapter 1, but it's the word of God. We know that following the word of God, following the laws of the God, brings total freedom. But it also exposes something, as I mentioned. It shows us, it shows us how much we fall short how much of a lawbreaker we are, and how much we need God's mercy. Listen to this final quote by Alberry. He says, There's no other way to make a human being merciful than for them to become gripped and defined by the mercy of God. Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. James puts it the other way around. Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who is not been merciful. God's law shows all of us that we are in desperate need of mercy. And how does mercy come to us? It comes through Jesus voluntarily becoming poor, ridiculed, tortured, and ultimately dying for you and for me. He was born in a pigsty. He was homeless at times. And he died a horrendous, embarrassing death. And instead of judging us and condemning us, as he had every right to do, he came down and he put on those filthy rags that you and I are wearing. It's essential to Christianity is understanding that inside our heart is filthy. But Jesus came not to condemn us, but to make us clean. This is the heart of the gospel the good news of Jesus, that he has come to establish his kingdom and in doing so take us from people who don't deserve mercy to those who have received it. Let me conclude with this. To understand the depth and the beauty of the book of James, you have to keep the gospel at the heart of everything he says. It's a matter of perspective. On the surface, we, we read about in, in this first Verse that James says, don't show favoritism. And that could fit very nicely in a variety of self-help books we see today, couldn't it? A book that says you'll be happy if you don't eat gluten, if you take ice baths, if you 
Meditate for 30, day, 30 minutes a day. If you're a vegan, if you only eat meat, if you don't show favoritism, if you're a really nice person, right? Because what self-help books do is they put the person at the center of the story. They, make, they glorify the person who's trying to make their life better, which is why they don't work. And what happens when you fail at one is they, they hit reset and they find a different way to spin the same message and they go, no, no, you could be amazing. You could be amazing. But that's not the Christian perspective. The Christian perspective says we're poor and helpless, wearing filthy rags, needing a rescuer. We need someone glorious to save us. Let's go back to verse one. What does James say? My brothers and sisters, he says, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. It's Jesus who says in John 17, on the eve of his crucifixion, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Because of Jesus, because of the gift he gives us through his glory, we can see ourselves as those who were filthy, but who were made clean by the gift of God through Christ. I love this quote by a pastor. He says this, a good Christian is a beggar who shows other beggars where the bread is. So how does this affect us? What does this mean for us as a church? If we see ourselves as ones who were lowly, needing help, filthy, but was people who were rescued by Jesus, should we not be the ones to love people with no partiality, with no favor, seeing all people created in the image of God. We should be known by this, and there should be a joy because, man, we were lost, but we have been found by the good shepherd. There's a quote that says, those who have been loved much, love much. I wanna, I wanna, end with a quick story. This last week I got coffee with a friend, um, a guy I've known for many years, hadn't seen him for about nine or 10 months. And we sat down at pipes on one of those outdoor benches at like 6.30 in the morning. And we we're just sharing about life. And then he's telling me he's been running a lot. So I asked him, hey, what's your, what's your running path down here? And he goes, oh, I run from um, kind of Cardiff up to Moonlight and back. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And, and then he tells me the story. He didn't know I was preaching on this, but he said, yeah, I used to, I was volunteering with an organization called Philabelly up in Carlsbad, South Carlsbad, and they would feed the homeless in the area. And when COVID hit, it shut it down. And he said, when I run this path, I get to see all these guys that have gotten to know over the years, and I can stop and I can say hi to them. And some of them, you know, there's a lot of struggles and issues, but some of them are pretty remarkable people. And I stopped to think, man, that is a life of someone who does not show favoritism, who just loves people. Somebody who understands who he was and now who he is in Jesus and he has gone forth loving people well. I pray that myself and I pray that we all can do the same. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for the simplicity of it, um, yet the conviction it brings as I look at my own heart and my own life. And I pray there's no 
judgment and condemnation felt. There's no guilt here. Lord, just an opportunity and a reminder of who we were and who we are in you and that we get to go forward with joy to love people well. It doesn't matter on status. It doesn't matter about wealth or power, any of that. There is a joy to love people because we are loved. So I pray you would um, give us courage, give us intentionality to reach out to those people in our lives. They can't offer us anything, but that we can bring your love to. We thank you so much for your son. We live and we serve because of him. We pray all this in his name. Amen.